Well, we are in a study through Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and uh, just, uh, just a quick little recap for uh, some of those who are with us for the first time today. We've been studying Ephesians, and in the first half of the book, it's, it's six chapters in total, the first three chapters are about, in summary, who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who we are as those who have believed the gospel, been born again, and now live, we're called his church. Who we are in Jesus Christ. And then the second half of the book is, as those people, who we are in Jesus Christ, how are we then to live? How are we then to live as Christians? How are we then to live as the church, the body of Christ here on earth? So it's a pretty simple one-two breakdown in the first two halves of the book. We're, we're in chapter four, so we're in that second part where Paul is discussing um, ways that we are to then live. If we are the people of God, then how do we live? So let me just go ahead and do this. This morning, let me read verses 1 through 24 of chapter 4. We're going to be focusing on verses 17 to 24. That's going to be our sermon text this morning. But I want to read the, the two sections before that that we covered in two sermons so that you can see how they flow, how they work together. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, this is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. Now chapter 4, as you notice, begins with this overarching command for the church to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And in verses 1 to 6, Paul tells the church to walk in the unity which they have already been given. And then in verses 7 to 16, Paul tells them to grow and mature in the knowledge which has already been revealed to them. And now, beginning in verse 17 through 24, he tells them to live in Christ, in whom they have already been made new. You see, a, you see an approach in Paul's thinking here. So grab your sermon outlines. I think Paul, Paul's going to say three main things to us today. He's going to say, don't walk like the Gentiles because they're deceived in their thinking. Second, learn Christ because truth is found in him. And then third, he gives instructions for us to put off and put on since we have been transformed. We have been renewed. And you'll read this sermon theme. Do not live as the Gentiles live according to the old self, but learn Christ and live in true righteousness and holiness. So we're to no longer walk as Gentiles. And in verse 17, just let me read that again so you can see how Paul wades into this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. This is forceful language. This is forceful language. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul urged the church to walk in unity. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4, Paul appealed to the church to grow and mature in Christ. Here, Paul insists. He even invokes, I'm giving testimony in the power and authority of the Lord, telling them they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So Paul is telling us Gentiles who have heard and believed the gospel that they have to give up their former Gentile way of living, right? The word Gentile now is really a synonym for unbeliever. All of the pagans out there, all of the unbelievers, which these Christians were, which we were before we came to faith in Christ. But he says they're, they're not Gentiles anymore. They're children of God, and so they're the church. They have to stop walking as Gentiles because unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds. It's not that the minds of unbelievers are empty. It's that the minds of unbelievers are filled with things that are futile. Their thoughts are vain and useless. Their views of the world and their perspectives on life are meaningless. It's the same word used in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Remember? Vanity. It's it's vain thinking. Life is vain, futile, without purpose, unless it's ordered around God and his purposes. It's what Paul says of unbelievers in Romans 1.21. You you know that verse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their darkened hearts in Romans is what Paul is referring to as their darkened minds here in Ephesians. And the mind here is more than just the ability to think. It's the Gentiles' capacity to think and plan and reason and make moral judgments and lifestyle choices. We could call it their worldview. Let's take a quick look at the worldview of the Gentiles in Ephesus in Acts 
chapter 19. Turn back just a little bit to Acts chapter 19. You're, you're familiar with this story. We'll pick up in verse 23. We'll just read a part of it and I'll, I'll do a little summarizing. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Paul, Paul is near the end of his three-year ministry of the gospel in Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is the church, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of the goddess Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only for that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may, may even be deposed from her significance and her magnificence, she, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. Confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. These are Paul's Christian companions. And they drag another man, Alexander, into the theater. And they're, they're having a, a near riot. It looks like a riot to me, but the author calls it a near riot. And they get there, and, and, and Alexander tries to give a little bit of a defense and tell what's going on. And as soon as they realize that he's a Christian, they shout for two more hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! It took a a town magistrate to calm the crowd down by assuring them of their false goddess. He, He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied? You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers. You're on the verge of riot and will have to do something legal about that. So stop now. And he manages to quell the riot. But you see their heart given over to this false goddess. You see their city's reputation given over to the fact that we are the Ephesians, whom Artemis loves. We're the one who built her a temple on the outskirts of the city. We're the one that built a gigantic statue of her and put it inside that temple with their own hands. And our whole economy and our well-being is tied up in our worship of this goddess Artemis. Artemis is the false goddess of the Gentiles in Ephesus, and they've, they've banked everything on her. Their livelihood, their reputations, their worship, their well-being. They were out of their minds at the prospect that their false goddess, made with hands, might be useless. They were lost in the futility of their minds. Although they didn't think so, and they offered, they were so offended by, by Paul and the church when they were told that they were futile in this worship. So Paul isn't referring only to their outward behavior when he says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about their status before God. Life apart from God the Father and Christ the Son is ultimately meaningless. It's futile. You see, on the inside, the unbelieving Gentiles were darkened in their understanding. 
just as the now-believing Gentiles in the church were, when they were dead, 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 in their transgressions and sins in which they formerly walked. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God's wrath. Chapter 2, verse 3. Until they were made alive in Christ. But the Gentiles continue to walk in that darkness. The unbelieving Gentiles are alienated from the life that comes from God because of the ignorance that is in them. It's not that they're stupid. I mean, they're running a pretty nice city from the world's standards. But they're ignorant of the life that's in God. Just as the now-believing Gentiles in the church were, when they had no hope and were without God in this world, chapter 2, verse 12, until they were brought near in Christ. But the Gentiles continue to walk in that ignorance. In hardness of heart, they have chosen to know Artemis, the goddess made by their own hands. They've exchanged the truth of God for idols and lies. They're 100% culpable for their sins against God, but they do not know God. But they do continue to walk under his just wrath. They're children of wrath like the rest. They've built a temple to Artemis, which they fill with their own sexual perversions, which is exactly what the Gentiles in the church did too, until they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed in Christ, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 13. And now the believing Gentiles in the church have been joined together and are being built up into a holy temple in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 21. You can see why they must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Neither can we. They are no longer Gentiles on the inside. Neither are we. They also must no longer walk as the Gentiles on the outside. Paul goes on in verse 19 to say, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. You know, hardened hearts on the inside lead to callous behavior on the outside. You know what a callous is. You know when you have one on your hand after raking leaves all fall and forgetting to put on gloves. You just kind of slip out the garage, I think I'm just going to rake for a little while, and then I wake for a little bit longer, and I end up with these calluses on my hands. And they're hard, and you can't feel anything. They've lost all their sensitivity. These, these people have no feeling for the things of God. They're callous to the things of God. So they, they live for themselves. They live lives that God would consider impure. Jesus teaches, remember, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. That's impurity language. Jesus in Mark chapter 7. Jesus teaches, take care. Disciples, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, that's greed, 
For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions in Luke chapter 12. The unbelieving Gentiles loved the world and the things in the world. I mean, they were, they're just like we were, aren't they? I mean, there's a time in your life where you go, you know, I really just want to be happy. And you know what would make me happy? I'm, I'm just going to launch out. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to make, make a bunch of money. I'll have all the things I want, and I'll be happy. And a lot of people are successful of that. And a lot of people make a lot of money. And a lot of people are still not happy. You know that. You know that this is futile. You know that this does not lead to the deep-seated joy that we're meant to have. Unbelieving Gentiles in the world are, 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 are sinning and they're never satisfied. They always want more. And so were the believing Gentiles in the church. Until what? Until they learned Christ. Look at verse 20. What a unique phrase. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. See, Paul, Paul uses this interesting phrase saying that we have learned Christ. You in the church, you have learned Christ. And the way you learned Christ was not to continue living in your old sinful ways. Rather, when we learned Christ, we learned to live in the truth. Because the truth is in Christ. But before he goes on to describe three ways we can learn Christ, he double checks his audience. Did you see that? He double checks his audience for those who may not have learned Christ yet. Remember, Paul ministered for three years in Ephesus, but he's writing this letter to the church about six or seven years later. So he knows many of the saints who he personally taught Christ. But there are obviously many others in the church whom he has not met, and perhaps some are hearing this letter read in the church who have not learned Christ and are still living as the Gentiles do. The same may be true here this morning. Some of you may not have learned Christ yet. And you may have gotten the gist of what it means to be in Christ from what we've said so far, but perhaps not as clearly and simply as would be helpful. To use some of Paul's own phrases in this letter to the church in Ephesus, let me bring you up to speed this way. We, all of us, have sinned against God. That is, we have ignored God and considered ourselves more important than him. That's sin. Because God, who is the giver of life, is and must be greater and more worthy of honor than the creatures to whom he gives life. The punishment for our sin is that we are all spiritually dead. We are, as Paul says, already children of wrath under the just judgment of God for our rejection of him. But because he's rich in mercy, Jesus, God's Son, took the punishment for our sin in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, God accepted his death in the place of our death. That is, for those who trust in Jesus' sin-atoning death and his life-giving resurrection from the dead. Everyone who believes in Jesus in this way, 
must turn away from their former sinful lives and live lives devoted to Christ. That's what we're reading now in this passage in Ephesians. And we honor God by living in his righteous ways because we love him. Now you've heard about Christ. And there is much more to hear, but even now you know enough to turn to Christ and to begin living for Christ. For all who call upon his name will be saved. So I appeal to you, seek him now, because he's a rewarder of all who seek him. And after checking the audience, Paul goes on. If you have heard about Jesus, and if you have been taught in Jesus, then you have found the truth because the truth is in Jesus. And right off the bat, we should be making all sorts of connections as a church. Paul was made, remember, everything I'm going to say now comes from earlier in Ephesians. Paul was made an apostle to the Gentiles so that he can what? Teach Christ. And we are expected to be learning Christ. Paul is God's gift of grace to the church for this particular purpose. We read all this already. Paul is making known the mystery of God's will to save and adopt Gentiles into the family of God and the mystery of God's purpose to unite all things in Christ. He's making this known. We're learning, and in learning these things, we're learning Christ. Because we are made alive in Christ, and we are brought near in Christ, and we are the body of Christ. And Paul has been praying. He hasn't just been teaching and making known. He's been praying for God to give us, the church, the spirit of wisdom of revelation in the what? Knowledge of Christ. And he's praying for us that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with the fullness of God. He's praying that we would, we would have a relationship with God in Christ. We have this habit and I understand why, of dividing the word knowledge and knowing when we read it in the Bible. That it is one thing to know about Christ, and we can understand that that's true, but it's another thing to know Christ, the way I know you. I have a relationship with you. But the two are never meant to be separated. As we know about Christ, we know him. We're growing in both at the same time. You can't have a relationship with somebody you really don't know anything about. The two are meant to happen together. We're not meant to separate them, although we can delineate the two aspects because we know people who have knowledge about Christ but don't have a relationship with Christ. But, but when Paul is talking to the church and he's saying, I'm praying that, I'm praying that you'd know. Well, we need to know things about Christ so that we might know Christ. The two things come together in this relationship aspect and to, we're to be filled then with all of the fullness of God. And you hear that and you go, and it kind of probably bounces off you. Because you're like, how can I possibly be filled with the fullness of God? If you lived my life with me this past week, it does not feel like a life lived with the fullness of God. And yet, you've been promised, dear brother and sister, the fullness of God. So apparently, we need to get after learning Christ. Because the knowledge of him is being given to us, taught to us, so that we would hear and learn and understand and grow, not just in knowledge about Christ, but in Christ. (laughs) 
This is the only place in Scripture that I'm aware of where we're told to learn a person. Do you see the uniqueness of that statement? Paul is addressing how we're to live our lives, and there was a time when he would have told us to learn the law, right? How are we supposed to live our lives, Paul? Well, you need to, you need to learn from the law, because the law reveals God's standard for holy living. But now, Paul tells us, learn Christ. To learn the person who has and will transform you. It's completely different. Here are the rules. Here's a person. Learn this person and you will be transformed. You know, I remember being at a wedding one time and listening to the toast being given to the bride. And the bride's best friend described the bride as saying that, you know, she is somebody that I've been a friend to for a long time. She's never seen a happy marriage. And she was absolutely determined for her entire life that she would never get married. If there's one thing she would never do, it would be to marry a man. Until she met a man. And she fell in love. And he changed everything for her. She was transformed not by a law or a rule, but by a person. The same idea is present towards the end of chapter 4. Turn to verse 29. It's really 30, but 29 is a good lead-in. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, don't behave in a way that would grieve a person. That person being the Holy Spirit. I think it's similar because, you know, from time to time, as hard as it is for you to believe, I will occasionally do or say something that grieves my wife. That hurts her feelings. That breaks her heart. I don't want to grieve my wife. But when I do, I don't think, oh no, broke a rule. No, I think, oh my goodness, I've grieved her. I've broken her heart, I've hurt her feelings. And, and because we're in this one flesh marriage relationship, I'm grieved by that too. I don't go to a rule book, I go to the relationship. Following Christ is not about rules, it's about a person. By grace and the electing love of God, we're in Christ. And so we're to learn Christ. The purpose of this letter from beginning to end is for us to learn Christ, which means a couple of things. One, we are not just learning facts about Christ, we are learning Christ himself. This is relational learning. We have learned the love of Christ because Christ really does love us. We have a new identity. We are in Christ, which appears about a thousand times in the letter to the Ephesians. Two, believers, Christians, apparently need instructions to live in Christ. Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to the believers. He's saying, you need instructions. We are tempted 
to fall back into our old patterns of Gentile living, aren't we? We are susceptible to falling back into futile thinking and callous living. So Paul gives us three instructions to grow in true righteousness and holiness, to learn Christ. Look at verse 22. You have learned Christ to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's saying, you learned Christ, and this is one of the ways. The truth in Christ is that you are to put off your old self. The old self has not been made alive. The old self is is not a renewed self. The old self is still under a sentence of death. The old self has to be stripped off like a dirty garment. Paul wrote to the Colossians and the Ephesians at the same time. Remember, we talked about that way back at the beginning of our series. And he gives a similar instruction to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 9. It's probably just a couple pages over. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 9 begins, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So in, in Colossians, he says you have already put off the old self and you have already put on the new self. Here in Ephesians, he says you are to put off the old self and you are to put on The new self. So which is it? Has the old self been put off or are we to put off the old self? It's both. It's both. When we met Christ, when we were made alive in Christ, we were transformed from the old man into the new man. We are the new self. We are no longer the old self. So we must no longer walk in the old self. You know, we could think of this in terms of justification and sanctification. By, by faith in Christ, we have been justified. We have been declared not guilty, and God sees us in the newness of Christ's righteousness. But also by faith, we are being sanctified as we walk out this life. We are becoming more like Christ as we follow him. So why bring up the old self at all? Well, he tells us. Brothers and sisters, our deceitful desires will still tempt us to corruption. There are choices to be made. We have to put off old sinful habits, old sinful attitudes, old sinful words. We need to be renewed, which is where he goes in verse 23 and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You see, you learned Christ this way. The truth in Christ will renew your old, futile thinking. Your meaningless thinking can be made new and true. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, right? That's right. When you think of renewing our minds, This probably isn't the first place we would go. We would probably go to Romans chapter 12 and beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, 
by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we need to be renewed continually. Each day, that's what Paul's describing here. This is an ongoing renewal. You need to work each day to reshape your thinking to learn the mind of Christ. How do we do that? I mean, my day's kind of busy. And in my day, there are so many competing messages that I have to sift through. So many competing truth claims. What's true, what's not. So many urgent things. So many important things. So many practical things that I need to think about. You know, it's going to take some effort and some discipline, isn't it? But what's the alternative? The alternative is to remain futile in your thinking and darkened in your understanding. And how does that work so far? We need our hearts and minds enlightened. Paul's already told us that. Paul's already prayed for that. I'm wondering if you remember, some of you, Zig Ziglar, you know, the Christian speaker? When we think about, when we think about renewing our minds, Zig Ziglar would say, every now and then you need a checkup from the neck up to eliminate stinking thinking. He had, he had kind of a big southern accent. But you get it, right? Every now and then you need a checkup, not your whole body, but from the neck up to eliminate stinking thinking. The truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of another. You know, learning Jesus renews your mind, and, and you may, some of you may listen to Renewing Your Mind on the radio with R.C. Sproul, right? So how do we do this? How do we renew our minds? What is the stuff that actually renews our minds? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the New Testament prophets and Christ Jesus himself, him being the cornerstone. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. Learn Christ from Scripture that reveals Christ, particularly in the New Testament. How do I do this? How do I renew my mind? Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Discuss with others your Bible. At his temptation in the wilderness, Jesus cited Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, saying, Man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If you can make time to feed your face during the day, you can make time to feed your soul. And Jesus spoke those words to Satan, who commands the old self. 
Scripture reveals the mind of Christ to us so that we may learn Christ and walk in Him. Remember Psalm 1. Remember David in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the way to learn Christ for the renewing of your mind. You know, I'll just toss in another easy way. Come to Sunday morning worship gathering with the expectation of hearing the word of God preached. It's kind of like spoon feeding. I mean, what's easier than that? Come expecting to hear the word preached. Come pay attention. Take notes. Work through your home fellowship questions before you go to home fellowship. Think about it. Meditate on the word a little bit. And then go to home fellowship and engage in the discussion of how to apply this word to our lives together in Christ. That seems tremendously practical to me. And it would bring about the renewing of your mind. In fact, the renewing of our collective minds as we gather together. We talk about what to put off and what to put on. Which is where Paul goes next in verse 24. You learn Christ this way, to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We have already put on the new self. And we are to walk in the new self. Both are true. And this is absolutely amazing. This is absolutely amazing. We believers have been created in the likeness of God. We've been created, recreated, in the likeness of God in Christ Oh, not me, I'm just, you know, I'm just old Joe the plumber. Well, if Joe the plumber believes in Christ, he's Joe the plumber who's been recreated in the image of God, the likeness of God in Christ. Look at chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. You remember this. I think this is a direct link from this verse, 424 to 210. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. We are a new creation in Christ. We're a new creation. We've been born again. We've been made new. Paul tells the Corinthian church, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen, because this is really encouraging. This is a game changer for your Christian life. Dear Christian, put on the new self that you already have. Brothers and sisters, no longer Gentiles, put on the new self who you already are. And what does that look like? You're really going to like this. What does it look like? You have been created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what it looks like. Put it on. 
Some of you really, really like that. Because it means there's no more shame. Some of you really, really like that because it means there's no more loneliness. You see, that's real transformation. That's gospel transformation. That's the difference between the old self and the new self and the renewal in Christ's blood that made it happen. That's real renewal. That's real restoration. And so don't hold back. Don't hold on to little bits and pieces of the old self. We're new in Christ. Put on what you've learned. Put on Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we learn Christ more and more, bit by bit, we're amazed at your grace towards us. And we thank you that having saved us, you go on to teach us what it means to be in Christ. Because it's beyond anything that we could have hoped for and imagined. And yet your power is working in us so that we might be filled with the very fullness of God in Christ. And so we pray that by your spirit you'd help us to do it. To walk in the newness of Christ. To walk in our new identity in Christ. To be filled with you. Make it our heart's desire, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.